So um, when I was a kid, uh, it was always a big treat to go to this restaurant called The Train, which was on a big, it was literally in a train, um, not on the tracks, but you would go in and it was a buffet, and it was the only buffet that I knew of at that point, and um, you could eat as much as you wanted, and you could eat in any order that you wanted. And so I learned after a, one or two trips to start with your dessert. Make sure you get to the dessert in because there's so much food and you're going to eat so much of it, you don't want to be left in the precarious situation of not getting to the dessert. But my parents eventually developed this rule because we kind of just piled on our plates and ate little bits and that whatever you served up, you had to finish. Um, or you could help one another. So my brother and I would start off with dessert and then um, if, you know, after we've eaten, if there was some left over, he would help me finish mine um, is the way that went. And we're going to do something similar tonight. We're going to skip through the the vegetables, meat, and potato part of Doctrine and Bible, and we're going to get right to the end, to the dessert of doctrine, which is eschatology, the study of lost things, the study of the way the world ends. Uh, and uh, we're going to be just talking about that tonight, and I'm going to need some help from my brother, Pastor Will, who's going to uh, come up here at some point, and we haven't really coordinated it, but there's chairs, we'll figure it out. And um, I'm going to have him help explain some of it, because he's just done some doctoral work in an aspect of this, so he's the expert, so I thought, well, let's, let's rather have him tell you rather than correct what I say afterwards. Um, so with all this in mind, turn in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 20. So you go right to the end, to the dessert table, and start dishing up in Revelation 20, the, the second last chapter, third last chapter of the Bible. Now last week we saw, we looked into the, the, the question of eschatology or end times, and we saw that it hinges on the question of when the kingdom comes. So first we kind of set the table by looking at what are different views of the kingdom. And there's four main views. And just to remind you, there's the, the view that the kingdom, when the Bible talks about the kingdom and that we're praying for the kingdom to come, may your kingdom come, may your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. The, the four main views are some people, some Christians think that that's talking about a theocratic government, so that God will rule on the earth um, from heaven, though, through his church, and that the world will become Christianized. Most people in the world, if not all people in the world, will become Christians, and we will set up um, laws that mirror the laws of the Bible and make sins illegal, and there's, there's different viewpoints about that in different spectrums, but that's one general view, that that's what it means to have the kingdom, that the whole world will become Christian. Another view is that uh, whenever the New Testament talks about a kingdom, it's talking about a spiritual kingdom, a purely spiritual kingdom that whenever it talks about the kingdom, it's referring to people being saved. And the kingdom of God spreading is just the gospel spreading and people becoming um, Christians. Another view is that the kingdom refers to the final coming of Christ. And when we say, may your kingdom come, it means may Jesus come back to earth and uh, heaven will be on earth and everything about the kingdom will be heaven on earth, and that is the final coming. And then there's the view, the view that I espouse called, um, we called it the already spiritual, not yet physical. Um, so there's already spiritual aspects to the kingdom that make sense of a lot of verses that talk about the kingdom being salvation, but that there are aspects of the kingdom that have not been fulfilled yet, that are, cannot be explained spiritually, that can only be explained by a future kingdom of Jesus coming back and establishing that kingdom physically on earth. So there's both, spiritual and physical. So that's what we concluded last week. But that now opens the question to, well, what does this look like? When does this happen? How does it happen? So that's what we're doing tonight. And um, 
I wanted to read for us the first six verses from Revelation 20. This is the only text in the Bible that talks about the timing of the kingdom specifically. And so I want you to just pay attention as I read the first six verses, how much you can actually learn just from this little section. Revelation chapter 20, verse 1. You remember this is a prophecy that um, the apostle John is, uh, has received on the, the island of Patmos, and he's writing this down in his old age. Revelation 20, verse 1. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he seized the dragon, the ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years, and threw him into the pit, and shut it, and sealed it over him, so that he might not deceive the nations any longer, until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. Then I saw thrones, and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. Also, I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or on their hands. And they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead, the unbelievers, did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. Okay, so as I said, this is the only passage that talks about the, the length of the kingdom, the time period of the kingdom, which it calls a thousand years. Now, there's a lot of debate about that. Does, the, the word a thousand years um, is where we get the word millennialism from because a thousand in Latin is the word where we get the word millennium from. It's kind of confusing because you think millennium would be a million years, but it's not. It's a thousand. Uh, this view, this discussion also used to be called kiliarchism because uh, kiliarch refers to the a thousand in Greek. But we're just going to stick with millennialism. That's what people call it today. And there are three main views. And so we're going to define those views and kind of unpack them. There's pre-millennialism, amillennialism, and post-millennialism. And that's the order I gave Brandy to put up there, but we're going to mix that around because I'm going to have uh, Pastor Will come up under the third point, which will be post-millennialism. But we're going to start off with these three views. Now, in the passage, we've already learned, according to that passage, Christ will be presently reigning during the kingdom, Right? that there will be a resurrected people reigning with Jesus in this kingdom, that Satan is bound during the time of this reign in the kingdom, but that he is released at the end, so he's not destroyed, and that there are people that can be deceived by him. And we learn that the time period is called a thousand years. So when we talk about the kingdom, we call it the millennium, or the millennial kingdom, we're referring to the phrase that John uses for a thousand years. Now, some people view that thousand years as just being a metaphor for a long time. A thousand is the perfect number, and it's, it'll be the perfect length of time, or kind of an infinite time. It just, you know, God owns a cattle on a thousand hills. Well, that doesn't mean he owns the cattle only on exactly 1,000. It means that he owns all the cattle on all the hills, right? And um, the verse that says, uh, a day is like a thousand years for the Lord. 
No, other way around. A thousand years is like a day for the Lord. And so they kind of take those passages and they say, you see, when John says a thousand year kingdom, he doesn't actually mean a thousand years. It can be any stretch of time that's a long period of time. So let me say up front that you can hold to any of these positions and not hold to the fact that the millennial kingdom has to be exactly a thousand years, even premillennialists. That's not what makes or breaks your view. So we're not going to spend a lot of time on justifying that it should be exactly a thousand years, but I'm just going to refer to the millennial kingdom because that's how we do it in in, when talking about eschatology. So let's look at the first view. The first view of the millennial kingdom is premillennialism, and I've called it a futuristic premillennialism, as opposed to a kind of another sub-view, which is called historic premillennialism. And we might even have some time for Q&A afterwards. We can tease some of that out. But I'm going to focus on pre-millennial, uh, futuristic premillennialism. In other words, futurist means that there's something about the kingdom that is not yet functioning now. It's going to be fulfilled in the future. So the prophecies in the, in the book of Revelation, like the one I just read in chapter 20, of Satan being bound and people being resurrected and reigning. It talks about this happening literally in the future. You'll see one of the other views, our millennialism says, no, this is happening right now in a spiritual sense. So premillennialism is known for knowing that there's going to be this time where these things will literally happen in the future. And it's called pre, because the pre, ah, and post refers to when does Jesus come back? We all agree there's a kingdom. The pre means that we believe, okay, I'm, so I'm premillennial. I'll just throw that out there in case you weren't aware. Premillennialists believe that Jesus comes back pre the millennium, before the millennium. So the next thing that happens is Jesus comes back, and there's a little time stuff. There's, you know, rapture and seven years of tribulation and judgment, and then he comes back and, and um, sets up the kingdom for a thousand years. Satan is bound at the beginning of it, and released at the end of it, and, and he's coming, and it's going to happen in the future. It's going to happen literally, and he comes before that gets set up. That's why it's called pre-millennialism. Um, so this view is not surprised that the gospel is busy spreading and that more and more people are becoming Christians throughout the ages. That's consistent with our view. And yet at the same time, we're also not surprised that as, as even though there are more Christians now than ever, the influence of Christianity is slowly decreasing. And possibly, it appears to be decreasing. And places that were very Christianized, like um, Germany and uh, Switzerland and England and France, are now considered almost post-Christian. They're now missions fields because there's so few Christians there. Um, and places like China, there's more Christian. But we would not be surprised if the persecution in China makes the number of Christians goes down again and the world just becomes more and more dominant. Um, and that's why sometimes the weakness of this view is pointed out is that it's pessimistic. Premillennialism, in a nutshell, believes that the world is kind of going to go from bad to worse over time, spiritually speaking. Maybe not technology and stuff, but spiritually speaking, it'll get worse and worse and worse. And then Jesus comes and establishes his kingdom and rules in perfect righteousness for those thousand years. And you'll see how the other views handle that. Now, one other thing that is very uh, important about premillennialism is that they, premillennialists believe Jesus could return at any moment. So this might be as bad as it gets, or it might get worse, 
But the next thing that happens is that Jesus comes back and is going to set up his kingdom. Um, this is different from the other views. The other thing that's important about premillennialism that's unique to futuristic premillennialism is that premillennialists believe that the nation of Israel and the promises to Israel that have not yet been fulfilled will be fulfilled during that time, during the thousand-year kingdom. So anything that you read about that's going to happen to Israel that hasn't happened, like they will have their king, Jesus the Messiah, ruling over them in Jerusalem, that they will be prominent among the nations, that the nations will stream to Jerusalem to find out about God, that um, they will have a restored relationship with God, that they will look on him whom they have pierced and mourn, and they will all be saved, all Israel will be saved, and that this, the, all of those promises, well, that, that hasn't happened. Just look at history. So futuristic premillennialists believe that's going to happen in the future, in the millennium, and every promise will be fulfilled literally. Now, I'm going to read a few passages and when we get to the other views, there, this, that's why premillennialism is going to take a little longer because I'm going to mention these passages. And then when we get to the other views, we don't have to read them again. We can just refer back to them. There's about a half a dozen. Um, so Micah chapter 4. Well, if you're, if you're taking notes to look these things up for yourself, let me give you, I'm not going to turn there, but in Zechariah chapter 12, verses 10 to 14, that's a passage that talks about all the Jews being saved that premillennialists say what was going to happen in the future, and literally, all Jews who are alive at the time will be saved, will become Christians. Micah 4, verse 1 to 7. It shall come to pass in the latter days, in the last time, in eschatology, that the mountain of the house of Yahweh, Mount Zion, Jerusalem, shall be established as the highest of the mountains, the most prominent of the mountains, and it shall be lifted up above the hills, and the people shall flow to it. And many nations shall come and say, Come, let us go to the mountain of Yahweh, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, that we may walk in his paths, to the whole world coming to Jerusalem. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of Yahweh from Jerusalem. And he, meaning of Jesus, the Messiah, shall judge between many peoples and shall decide for strong nations far away. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. It will be a time of complete world peace during this kingdom. But they shall sit, every man under his vine and under his fig tree, and no one shall make them afraid. For the mouth of Yahweh of hosts has spoken. All the people walk each in the name of his God, but we will walk in the name of Yahweh our God forever and ever. In that day, declares Yahweh, I will assemble the lame and gather those who have been driven away and those whom I afflicted. And the lame I will make the remnant and those who were cast off a strong nation. And Yahweh will reign over them in Mount Zion from this time forth and forevermore. So Micah chapter 4 is talking about a time of world peace where Jesus is on earth and reigning and the Jews have a prominent position as a nation. Isaiah chapter 11, from verse 1, there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, in other words, a, a, the Lion of David. A branch from his roots shall bear fruit, and the spirit of Yahweh shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of Yahweh. And so this is a prophecy about Jesus. I'll skip forward. Um, verse 4. With righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips. 
and kill the wicked. You see, there's this time when the Messiah is here and he's judging and there's bad people around. So in my view, that can't be heaven. Um, it goes on to say, the wolf shall dwell with the lamb. The leopard shall lie down with the young goat, the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together. And a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze. The young shall lie down together. The lion shall eat straw like the ox. And a nursing child shall play over the whole of the cobra. Um, so again, it's this time of restored peace between man and animal and in the animal kingdom. But notice that there's animals, there's children, um, there's snakes. You know, this doesn't sound like heaven. Um, and it goes on to say, nor will they hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of Yahweh and the, as the waters cover the sea. In that day, the root of Jesse shall stand as a signal for the peoples. And then it actually lists out nations, Assyria, Egypt, Patros, Cush, Elam, Shemar, etc. So it's talking about being on earth, a physical kingdom. Jesus is present. There's a partial lifting of the curse. People are living long lives. There's this restoration of the animal kingdom and all these types of things. And there's a time of world peace. There are still bad guys, but Jesus deals with them himself. Okay, so that's one passage. Here's some shorter ones. Uh, 2 Timothy 3, verse 1 to 5. Uh, but understand this, that in the last days, there will come times of difficulty. People will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. So the idea is that in, when Paul was writing, he's predicting a time in the distant future, the latter days, where people are getting worse, not better. 2 Timothy 3.12 says, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil people and apostles will go from bad to worse. The evil people and imposters will go from bad to worse, deceiving and being de deceived. So again, in Paul's mind, in the future, things are not getting better and better and better spiritually and socially. Things are getting worse and worse. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 3. Know this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days. Scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, where's the promise of his coming? So 2 Peter 3 says things are going to get worse as well in the last days. Um, that's good enough for now. If you want to write down another reference, 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 13 to 18. 1 Thessalonians 4 talks about rapture, where when Jesus comes, he raises believers from the dead and catches them up to himself. That's 1 Thessalonians 4. So um, the application for the the Premillennial view, premillennialists tend to preach these things this way. Go get busy evangelizing. Spread the kingdom of God spiritually because the end is nigh. You know, that Jesus could come back at any moment and then it's too late. So share the gospel and live holy lives. And don't worry as much, in general, premillennialists would have this attitude, don't worry as much about trying to fix this government and this world and this land and this culture and just make sure people are being saved because that's what's going to affect the world and even while that's happening the world's probably going to get darker and darker and darker and that doesn't really matter because jesus is coming back for us that's the premillennial view any questions no i'm just kidding hold your questions till later um we're going to skip over postmillennialism for now and we're going to do amillennialism just briefly so Amillennialism takes its name for saying, you know, if, 
if pre means Jesus comes back before the millennial kingdom on earth, and post means he comes back after we set up the kingdom and then he comes, which we'll talk about, amillennialists believe there is no physical kingdom on earth. So it's kind of a misnomer to call them amillennial because they're not saying there is no kingdom. They're saying the kingdom is purely spiritual. Remember that from last week? These are the people who believe the kingdom is purely spiritual. Every time you read about the kingdom in the Bible, it's talking about salvation. It's talking about a spiritual kingdom. And so when you read a passage like Micah 4 that says there's going to be world peace in the kingdom, well, the kingdom is salvation. So it is a metaphor, a spiritual view of peace in our hearts, peace in the church, peace in the world, because the spiritual kingdom is here. And they lean, I looked at those verses last week. Remember, um, Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my people would be fighting for me, right? And so they say, aha, there you go. Now, remember, I hold, we believe that too, that there's spiritual aspects. But we also, it's very key that premillennials believe that there's this future physical manifestation of the kingdom as well. Already? Not yet. Our millennialists say, no, there is no physical, there's no necessity for a physical kingdom and those promises to be fulfilled physically. They can just be fulfilled spiritually or metaphorically. Now, some millennials will say, no, 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 we believe it's going to happen, but that's going, that's going to be in heaven and it's going to last forever. And you say, well, what about the children? And the, well, no, that's just a metaphor. Remember, so that's always a, a metaphor. It's always spiritual language. That's millennialism. They believe that everything happens at once when Jesus comes back. They do believe Jesus could come back any, any moment. And he can come back any moment, not to set up a physical kingdom on earth, but to usher in the eternal state, to have the great judgment where Satan is judged and unbelievers are judged and believers are resurrected and they reign for a thousand years means forever. And the major problem with that view is, but it says after that thousand years, Satan is released. And that's a very, very big problem, that there's these two resurrections mentioned. Um, another big problem is that, well, Satan is bound during this thousand years. And they say we're in the thousand years right now as well. That we're just, it's this indefinite period of time. It's been going on for 2,000 years already, but that doesn't matter. We're in the kingdom right now, the thousand-year kingdom. And so you say to them, is Satan really bound and in a pit? And they will say, yes, he's bound. That's what it says. He's bound for the thousand years no longer able to deceive the nations. And then you say, well, Peter says that he's prowling around looking for whom to devour. No, he's on a leash. But he's being restricted. But he is bound. I mean, that's really trying to make your view fit the text rather than the text birth your view, in my opinion. So that, that's not a very strong view. Um, they will say that what, what it means is that Satan is no longer deceiving nations as a whole. He's just de deceiving individuals. But again, you've got this problem of like, well, when does the kingdom end when he's released to do that stuff again? So the strong point of their view is that it is, uh, imminency is still possible. Jesus could return at any moment, um, which is good. And their application would be evangelism is central. Get people saved. We're in the kingdom now. So Christ is reigning victoriously, and we should, ex we should expect success in our evangelism, and we should do that, and more and more people can join the kingdom and at some point, Jesus is going to return, and so things could get better, they could get worse, it doesn't really matter, Jesus is coming back. So it has some application 
overlap with premillennialism. Okay, you got it. So, so far we've got Jesus comes back and sets up a physical kingdom, premillennialism, or amillennialism, Jesus doesn't come back to set up a physical kingdom at all. Um, we're in the kingdom right now in a spiritual way, and when he comes back, it's to set up heaven for eternity, and all the judgments happen together. Whereas in premillennialism, there's a, there's a rapture, there's a judgment for believers called the Bemisty judgment, there's the sheep and goats judgment after the tribulation, then there's the great white throne judgment after the thousand years where the uh, dead are raised to be judged and Satan is thrown into the lake of fire and the amillennialists don't like that. They're like, why split it up? There's one big judgment, one big resurrection, one big coming together and where everything's wrapped up. And if you say to them, but Revelation says there's a first resurrection and a second resurrection, they say that's talking about your first resurrection is when you get saved. And your second resurrection is when your body comes back to life. And so one of the strong proponents of this view, N.T. Wright, has done an exhaustive study on the word anastasia, which means resurrection in Greek. And he concluded that every single case of resurrection in the Bible, whenever that word is used, refers to a physical resurrection. But it can't mean that for this word because then my view doesn't work. So this is the one exception. And you're like, oh, come on. The word always means a physical resurrection. Why don't we just take it that that's what John meant? Okay. Now, the way I just spoke about amillennialism is why I've asked Will to come now and help me talk about postmillennialism. Um, so just to clarify, Will and I have the same view. We have the same theology, same eschatology. But I have just found in discussion that Will is way better at articulating what postmillennialists believe because I tend to just you know, find all the holes and point those out like I just did with amillennialism, which is not the best way to present anything. You always want to present the view in such a way that the people who hold the view say, yes, that's what I believe. Um, so with that in mind, will my brother please come up and help me finish my dessert, as it were? And so I'm going to ask you a few questions, and I'm just going to start off with, could you summarize, and, and do you want, to just, you want to sit? Okay, let's try it. Let's try the sitting. This is where Tom interviewed me for the very first time, the first week we were here, so I feel right at home sitting here. Okay. You, weren't, you were gone, though. You didn't, was, you didn't care to participate. I was gone. But I'm having my turn now. So, um, so Will, could you uh, start off just by summarizing the post-millennial view? kind of the way I just did with the other two, and fill in anything that I've said that's wrong about the others. Yeah, so post-millennialism, Clint mentioned this when he was preaching, post-after, millennium, after the millennial kingdom. So some post-millennialists post will affirm a literal thousand-year kingdom, some of them won't. But the emphasis is the millennial kingdom is on earth, and it is brought about by Christ reigning in heaven through the church on earth. And then after this time of flourishing and prosperity and blessing to the nations, then Christ will return physically, bodily to the earth. So while we emphasize, no, these blessings cannot come about until Christ physically returns in Revelation 20, they emphasize, no, these blessings will come about before Christ physically, bodily returns through the work of the Spirit, through the church operating amongst the nations. Yeah, good. So you would say that the, the gospel spreads, in the, in the post-millennial view, the gospel spreads like the mustard seed and eventually takes over the world so that the majority of the world are Christians, and that's what helps us set up the kingdom before Jesus comes back. Yes, and that's, that's an important distinction because any post-millennialist worth 
his salt. When, when Clint last week mentioned the Crusades, for example, most post-millennialists today would say, amen. We, we do not want to take the kingdom by force. We do, this is not, the average post-millennialist today will not say top down. They will not say government down. They will say bottom up. So in other words, this begins with the Holy Spirit causing people to be born again through the preaching of the gospel. And then as the gospel spreads, like you mentioned, you know, leaven we have in Luke 13, the picture of the kingdom of God is like a tree. It begins small and it grows and then birds can come and land in the tree. So as the kingdom grows and as more and more people are born again, post-millennialists will emphasize, well, if that happens to enough people, then of course it's inevitably going to start changing nations and governments. So the, the main post-millennial approach today is not force it through government. It's that government will slowly become more and more Christian as more and more people are born again by the power of the Holy Spirit. Yeah. And th thanks for clarifying that, because when I mentioned the um, kingdoms last week, I spoke about it. In history, post-millennialists have historically Said the way we're going to bring the kingdom about is to get Christian leaders, Christian governments, even Christian armies, and, and kind of from the top down. But as you're saying now, uh, nobody really holds that anymore. Um, it's the world will become more in line with the laws of the Bible as more and more people get saved. Yeah. And, and one other comment on that just if you interact with somebody who's post millennial, sometimes premillennialists, us, will criticize this view by saying something along the lines of, you're saying that things are going to get better. Like, look at the world around you. Don't you see that things are declining? That's not a good argument against postmillennialism. And the reason why is because history ebbs and flows. So there are many postmillennialists today who will recognize, yeah, we're in a down point. There are times where things get better and there are times when things get worse. So just like premillennialism does not collapse if we have a season of spiritual revival. And just look at the Reformation. If you were alive just before the Reformation, you would think, look at the spiritual darkness, and then you have this explosion of the gospel. That didn't harm premillennialism any more than things getting worse today harm postmillennialism. They would just say, we have, we have mountains, we have valleys, and ultimately this will occur. And it's a good point that they talk about it, you know, it's kind of like a stock market graph. That's why you, you never yes. pull your money out when the market dips because it'll eventually recover and it's eventually going to go up again. Right. And in the same way they say, is the world more Christian than it was in the year 100 AD? Yes. Right. It, is, was it more in 500 AD? Yes. And it keeps getting more and more Christianized. And so if you have a long enough trajectory, let's say another 1,000 years, 3,000 years, 10,000 years at this trajectory, the world will become more Christian. Right. But what is the inherent problem with that as far as imminency is concerned? What he means by imminency is that Christ can return at any moment. That position, I don't think I'm misrepresenting when I say this, that is not what postmillennialists put their hope in. It's incompatible with yeah, postmillennialists. Postmillennialists greatly emphasize that our hope is Christ and Christ changing hearts through the Holy Spirit. But if you listen to postmillennialists argue, they are not looking in any sort of near-term time period for the return of Christ because in their theology, clearly, we're, we're not there yet. So there is a lot of work to do, and this is a benefit of postmillennialists. They take seriously that we're to work and be salt and light and try to reach the nations, but there is no way to maintain the imminent return of Christ in a postmillennial system. Yeah. So if you start listening to them, you'll notice there's very little talk about the actual return of Christ to earth because to them, that's off. 
that's in the future. That's not the focus now. Right. So can you name some of the modern proponents, or maybe even historical proponents? Jonathan Edwards was Yeah, you quoted one this morning. Yeah, Jonathan Edwards was a post-millennialist. Um, more recent guys that are influential, um, some of these names you'll know, some of them you probably won't. Um, Kenneth Gentry, Gary DeMar are two very influential guys. They've laid a lot of the foundation that some younger post-millennialists today are standing on. Um, some post-millennialists I'm very grateful for and I've learned from their ministry. If you're familiar with James White, um, he, ha he is a post-millennialist and the church that he's a part of, Apologia, so Jeff Durbin and all of those guys, they're post-millennialists. And I wanna emphasize, I am grateful for a lot of the work that those men do. I just can't agree with them here. Right. I had lunch with James White once, and he debated me about the, the virtues of gluten in pizza. And you just lose a debate when you talk I wouldn't want to debate James White on I anything. would rather debate him on gluten in pizza than on post-millennialism, <laughs> because he's going to win the argument. So he's, he's a brilliant man. But anyway, so okay, so those are some modern proponents. Um, you've mentioned some of it, but if you could just summarize the pros and the cons of this theological system. Pros would be, I, I think... He, Correct me if I'm wrong. I think he, Clint sees amillennialism a little more like, yeah, I can kind of see this. I see that a little bit with postmillennialism because postmillennialists and premillennialists both take certain prophecies in scripture literally. We're going to go to the same places as far as the nations will bless the Lord. Kings will be blessed by the, the gospel. All of that we affirm. We say yes and amen. So pros I see, there are certain prophecies they see. We cannot spiritualize this away. This is going to happen on earth, on this planet that we currently live on. Um, I think post-millennialists are, are good at tracing um, based on their view, and as I say this, I'm not defending it, I disagree with it, but ultimately, I do think some of them are good at tracing the theme of the kingdom of God begins small, and it multiplies, and it grows through scripture. So, for example, um, the gradual nature of the kingdom of God in parables, they take that very seriously. The gradual nature of people coming to obedience in Christ. So, for example, when a postmillennialist looks at Psalm 110, that Christ will reign until his enemies are made a footstool for his feet. The word until is there, right? They take that very seriously. Psalm 42, when it talks about that the Messiah will um, be working until he establishes justice for the nations. Or Psalm 2, when it talks about the nations will rage, and, but the nations are the inheritance of the Messiah. So he, he's going to get that. So post-millennialists take those passages literally and seriously, um, which I commend them for, I just have a different interpretation on when and how those will be fulfilled. Yeah, and you said, correct me if you're wrong, so you are wrong in that um, I, I don't view our millennialism more favorably than post-millennialism. I would agree okay. with you on that. I would say post-millennialism is a, is a view that I can respect. Um, if, if For me, imminency is the issue, because yes. I believe that the Bible teaches clearly Jesus said I could come as a thief in the night and that you should live your life as if you could come back at any moment. Uh -huh. And I just don't see what you do with those passages. But if you take imminency out of the picture um, and you apply it like, well, come as a thief in the night means you could die at any moment and you could see Jesus tonight. Okay, if you take imminency out the picture, I think it's a very respectable view. I think it's, it's applied well these days in society and I don't have a problem with that. Amillennialism, I just, I, I cannot see the hermeneutic they use as acceptable because for amillennialism, you have to take prophecies as spiritual 
when in other places they're being fulfilled literally. So mm -hmm. like the curses to the Jews come literally, but the blessings come spiritually to the church. That's just too much for me. Mm -hmm. um, okay, another question. How do post-millennialists deal with some of those passages I read earlier, like the, the um, world peace in the Micah 4 and um, the, the you know, reversal of the curse and that kind of thing in Isaiah 11 with restoration with animals, um, if things getting from bad to worse in the latter days. Mm -hmm. Things are going to get bad to worse. In the latter days, it's going to be scoffing. So it seems to me that the writers of the Bible thought that no matter when the end is, just before the end comes is going to be one of the worst times. Mm -hmm. How did they deal with that? So one thing they would emphasize is what do we mean when we say the latter days or the last days? So First John chapter 2 verse 13 makes it clear there is a sense in which we are in the last days. He talks about there are antichrists amongst us. So is there a sense in which uh, biblically in the, mind of, in the mind of the biblical authors that after the resurrection we are in the last days? In a sense, yes. So a lot of those passages they would say this is primarily speaking about the first century. That I can't emphasize that enough. The first century is key to post-millennialism. So when it talks about there will be scoffers in the last days, they would say, yes, we're in the last days, and especially the first century leading up to the destruction of the temple. That's a key event for post-millennialists. So anything about things getting worse in the future, they will primarily view as fulfilled in the past, and that that is not necessarily going to describe the experience of believers from now until Jesus comes back. Okay, that's a good answer. Okay, I mean, I've kind of covered what I wanted to. Um, we do have about seven minutes left, I think. So should we just take questions and see how that goes? Yeah, you can take questions. I'll sit here and watch you. <laughs> uh, so are there any questions about this? Not a normal Wednesday night where you can ask on anything specifically about this. Yes, Carol. The beam of seat. Yeah, it's a good question. So let me repeat that. Um, Carol's asking about the Bema Seat, which I mentioned in um, the sermon today from 1 Peter 1, uh, 16 to 17. 17 um, and we went to 2 Corinthians 5.10. We went to 1 Corinthians 3.10 and following. And the Bema Seat judgment, 2 Corinthians 5.10, Paul says, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. And that in the Greek is the word Bema. Now, a Bema was a, um, a place of rewards at the Isthmian Games in Corinth. You can actually go see it today. I've been there. Um, so it was like a podium where people were given their medals, their wreaths for running a race. And so he's writing to the Corinthians and he latches onto that imagery. Carol's question is why, is, why is that just such a brief mention when you focus in on it? It seems like such an important doctrine. Um, and I can tell you that that was one of the things I wrestled with in my master's thesis that I did a thesis on it and my doctoral work that I did on it was that exact question. Like this is a very important doctrine, in my opinion, for Christians to live their life for eternity, understanding that your eternal reward depends on how you live your Christian life. Um, not your salvation, but the, the roles in, in the kingdom. Um, if you look at church history, a lot of the great people that we, the, one of the things I love doing is reading biographies of 
Christians of the past, and one thing they have in common is they mention the Bema seat. So you'll read William Carey, why did he go to Burma? Because of the Bema seat. Why did Jonathan Edwards wake up at four in the morning? Because of the Bema seat. You know, Hudson Taylor and Adoniram Judson, and just one after the other after the other, they say it's because of the, so, because of the Bema seat. So Christians in history who have understood that doctrine, it is a big part of their lives. Um, it, and once you see it, if you want to read the book, I put it all in the book, Preacher's Payday, where I kind of bring all those passages together. Once you see it, it is all over the New Testament. It's not a little doctrine, I, I think. Um, now, the Bema Seat judgment happens, the timing is not 100% clear, but when Jesus comes back and raptures the church, my understanding is that the, the reward of believers happens during that time, before the end of the tribulation, where he comes back to judge the world. Good question. Anyone, any other questions? There's one back there. Yes, Will. You're talking about Revelation chapter 1? Well, let me repeat that just for the, the tape, and then I'm going to ask Will to deal with that, the 70 AD issue. Um, so he, uh, what Will's asking is in Revelation 1, 7, Behold, he's coming with the clouds. Every eye will see him, those whom he has pierced, and all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him, even so. Amen. And Yeah, the timing is near. Yes, absolutely. So I'm going to ask Will because... Because the, the idea that the, this end times was going to happen near, that's your question. And so some people have answered that by saying all of those prophecies were f fulfilled in the destruction of the Temple of Jerusalem in 70 AD. So what do you say to that? Yeah, coming to the destruction of the Temple in 70 AD, um, according to, it's called preterism, but that's basically just a fancy way of saying there are major prophecies that are fulfilled in the destruction of the temple, a big chunk of Revelation, Matthew chapter 24. And so preterists or post-millennialists would read when he says in verse 7, he is coming. They don't interpret coming to be his future coming, the second coming. They would say that's a judgment coming. So when it says every eye will see him, that's just an emphasis, that's just kind of apocalyptic language for um, it will be evident that it occurs. So the, the coming in 70 AD, according to post-millennialists, and to their credit, they do 
keep, this is happening very soon because it happened in 70 AD. Where I would disagree with that is if you trace the word coming, there's a few different ways it's translated, but one of the main ones is parousia. If you trace that through the New Testament, you are going to have a very difficult time saying all of that happened in 70 AD. So what you have to then do is look at all the various prophecies and come up with very unique ways to make it work. So for example, in, in Matthew 24, it talks about um, that he will come and the tribes will mourn and then there will be angels that go forth. Well, the angels become the church and the church is taking the gospel to the nations. You, you have things um, like the, the wars and rumors of wars. It talks about it in a global scale and they say, no, this is just about the first century. So there's a variety of ways that you have to try to make the coming work in 70 AD. And so what I would say is in the minds of the authors of the New Testament, it is coming soon. That's the point of imminence, is that this could happen at any moment. But to try to take that verse, even though I see the motivation, and then say, therefore, all of this has already happened, you really have to crucify prophecy mm -hmm. to make that work. Yeah, just two things I want to add to that. One is um, the way you can take soon. When we, th when we use the word soon, we think it means in time happening in a short while. Uh -huh. But in, in scripture, when it talks about soon, it means next. It means it can happen at any moment. So you know when you're on hold, and they put you on hold, and they say, someone will be with you soon? Well, that could be an hour. But what that means is, don't hang up and go and get something, you know, don't put down the phone and go and make yourself some coffee, because they could answer while you're doing that. It could, it's the next thing, it's imminent. That, so that's how we take ingus, is the Greek word, um, which doesn't mean necessarily soon in time, but just what's next. The other thing is that view, that everything happened in 70 AD, relies heavily on dating the uh, Revelation, the book of Revelation, to before 70 AD, which it was not. The book of Revelation was written in 95 or 96 AD, not 60 AD. And so you have to get the book of Revelation before the destruction of the temple for it to be a prophecy of the destruction that's happening soon. And you just, you can't do that. John wrote this many years later. Good, any other questions? I think we have one more minute, one more question. Uh, yeah, Charlie. difference between dispensational premillennialism and historic premillennialism in 60 seconds. Go. No, you. Oh, come on. <laughs> uh, that's a very big topic that maybe on a Wednesday night Q&A, but just to briefly say uh, that among those who believe that Jesus will come back and then set up the kingdom, premillennialists, um, the historic premillennialism, which is called that because the early church fathers seem to hold that view. So historically, this was the view that premillennialism was. Um, they don't hold to uh, the, well, they would say that the church, prophecies about the church appear in the Old Testament. That's one thing. They would also say that um, Israel is, does not need to have a prominent place in the kingdom because uh, the fulfillment happens in the church, not in Israel. Um, and they would tend to be what's called post-tribulational, which means that rapture happens after the judgment. There's no need to judge the Jews. Um, it happens afterwards, and then the millennial kingdom comes. So it's just it's a nuanced view. Dispensational premillennialism, which is what I would hold, I, would be, I guess I would technically be called a progressive dispensationalist, premillennialist, pre-trib rapture. Thank you very much. Um, 
It's all printed on your card when you join the club. Um, it means that God dispensed his grace in, in different dispensations in history. Um, oh, wait, let me make it simpler. Uh, Israel. It boils down to Israel. That's, that's the sine qua non of dispensationalism, is that the promises made to Israel have not been fulfilled literally, and so dispensationalists believe that there will be a time in the future, a dispensation in the future, the thousand years, where all of those prophecies will be fulfilled literally. And other views don't take that as a necessity. They say it can be fulfilled spiritually in the church. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah, okay. I mean, I, I no, that was very good. Okay, yeah. thank you. Well, um, we'll, we'll maybe you can, if you have other questions, bring them on Wednesday night after the Luke sermon. We'll have another QA. I'm going to ask Will to pray for us, and then um, do we have a closing song tonight? In the prayer, the band will come up. Let's pray. Lord, we put our hope utterly and completely in the Lord Jesus Christ. We put our hope in him for salvation. We put our hope in him um, for how he rules and reigns and guides and orchestrates um, all things for our good and for his glory. And we put our hope in him ultimately um, to make all things new and set everything right and to return in glory and power. And Lord, how we long for that day. Help us to be faithful even now. Would we be diligent? Would we labor hard? Would our hope about the future drive us to bring the reign of Christ to bear on all things today? Lord, help us to um, apply various applications about your second coming and not just let this be speculation or debate. Lord, help us to be the one that Matthew 24 speaks of that is being faithful in his house faithful to those that he serves, faithful to family and, and to our kids and to those that we're around. Lord, help us to just live in light of this glorious hope. We, we thank you that you will come and you will come quickly and soon and we long for that day so that we will dwell with you forever and ever. And it's in the name of Christ I pray, amen.